Hello and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sunderland and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield. In this episode, we will be talking about refugees and in particular those trying to reach Europe. First up is a discussion between Professor David Owen and David Goodhart on the right to asylum. And then we will hear Professor Hervin Crawley talk about new research on the refugee crisis. On to our first topic. The refugee crisis the world is currently witnessing opens up many questions, not least moral and ethical ones, about how European and other wealthy and democratic states should respond. Here to discuss this is Professor David Owen at the University of Southampton. David Owen is Professor of Social and Political Philosophy and his research includes questions on the ethics and politics of migration. We're also joined by David Goodhart, Director of the Integration Hub and former Director of the Think Tank Demos. To begin with, I asked David Owen why we should be admitting refugees at all. Why do we have a moral obligation to offer refugee protection? Okay, I mean, we should probably distinguish here four possible grounds of protection for refugees. Um, The first is simply prudential. and not moral at all in that respect, namely that in the absence of a regime for protection for refugees, you heighten threats to international security, spillover of conflicts into new territories. Um, And so having a refugee regime provides a mechanism for giving some sort of order to that, that context and limiting the broadening of threats to international security. Second, second reason would just simply be humanitarian duties. So this would be just the same as a case where you had an earthquake or an environmental disaster somewhere, and there's a sense that we owe humanitarian duties to people across the world, however distant, where we can help. It's kind of, you know, those who have the capability to help at relatively low cost should do so. A third, slightly stronger version would be to say that no, we owe duties of justice. That is, it's not simply the case that, you know, it's a humanitarian duty which we can choose to do, particularly, or we're obligated to do when costs are low, but because these are people whose human rights are under threat, who are um, subject to persecution, then we actually have a duty of justice, to, which is a strict and binding duty to protect them. And, and the fourth and final version would be to say, well, look, what makes a world of states such as we, we have legitimate? And that legitimacy seems to rely on the claim that the world of states can provide protection of human rights for uh, all human beings. Insofar as one or more states fails to protect the human rights of their citizens, that's not simply a legitimacy problem for that state. It poses a legitimacy problem for the international system of states. So there, the refugee regime and our obligations to refugee regime, to refugees serve as a kind of legitimacy repair mechanism. 
They basically say, well, look, the world order of states is still legitimate, even if it's got states acting uh, wrongly, because it provides a way of protecting those who are persecuted by those states. So it repairs the legitimacy problem um, in the global political order. So that's four different views. I personally incline to the last of those views, but different people, different theorists and politicians would appeal to um, different versions of 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 that that ground of duty to to refugees. Mm, thanks, David Goodhart. Do you subscribe to any of these four views, or have you got a fifth one? <laughs> Um, no, I think um, I disagree with that pretty fundamentally. I, I, I do agree that yeah, as rich, liberal, you know, kind of quasi-Christian states in Europe, we do have some obligations to people in wretched situations. Um, but I think there are lots of ways in which we can fulfill those obligations. And I think the problem <clears throat> with the current legal regime, the 1951 Geneva Convention, supplemented by the EU's Humanitarian Protection Directive of 2004, is that they place far too much emphasis on the automatic right to come and live in one of those European countries. And that qualifies another fundamental right, uh, an existential right of a nation state, which is to determine who should come and live in a country at any given time. Now, when the numbers were relatively small, as they have been for most of the post-war period, the odd spike here and there with the um, Balkan crisis in the early mid and in the late 90s, um, uh, uh, this hasn't really been an issue, um, as I say, with the exception of those occasional spikes. It is now a very fundamental issue with Europe's lack of borders sort of revealed to the world Uh, in the middle and end of last year, um, we're in a completely different situation. And I think we have to stop um, this kind of legalistic discussion and have a political discussion about what sort of, um, which groups different countries are indeed prepared to accept. I mean, essentially what's happened is the, the European Union's Europe's bluff has been called on this. We spent the last 30 or 40 years broadening and broadening and broadening the term, the, the, the conditions, the criterion under which people can come here. Um, and um, it didn't really make any difference because hardly anybody could get here. People were either too poor or too ignorant or they were locked away in prison states like Iraq and Syria. Now the prisons are open um, and people can come here. Uh, we have the internet. People can click on the internet and they can see how good life is in North America and Western Europe, and they want a, a slice of it. And that, that's an absolute disaster from the point of view of global development. Um, we have an absolutely um, uh, enormous brain drain problem. Um, and I, I mean, I completely disagree with David that somehow it is a threat to the global system, the fact that Eritreans have fewer rights than Scots. I mean, in what way does that constitute a crisis? It doesn't constitute a crisis at all. I think it is, it's nonsense on stilts to talk about every human being uh, being endowed with rights. Rights come as a result of um, social, legal, political, institutional developments. You, know, you need the rule of law, you need judiciaries, you need 
reasonably clean police forces and so on and so forth. And much of the world doesn't have that, which means that people in those countries don't have rights to the, to the level that we are used to here. Um, I mean, it, it's a sort of fantasy. Uh, we, we can talk about it as if people did have those rights, but they don't. Um, and uh, Europe uh, enormously overreaches it. There's a terrible kind of Eurocentric, almost sort of colonial attitude hidden away, I think, in a lot of this discussion. We cannot solve all the world's problems. We need to select, and we, we need to, and every country will select in different terms. I think if we swept away much of the current legal framework, it would be enormously beneficial. We would have to have a public debate about whether we let in Af Afghan interpreters, for example, which I think, by the way, we definitely should. Um, uh, there are all sorts of small manageable groups like that, that it's a complete no-brainer um, we, should, we should allow in. We owe it to them massively. Uh, but then when there's a civil war uh, in Syria, should, should everybody who's affected by the civil war have a right to come to Europe? No, I don't think they automatically should. That's where we need to get much better at uh, protecting people, providing some sort of basic life and hope in decent small towns in neighbouring countries. People tend to want to stay as close as possible to the, to the crisis region. Uh, so I think we've, we've, um, yeah, we've, we've got to rethink a lot of these things fundamentally. Okay, quite a lot in there for you, David Owen. Do you want to respond to some of these uh, claims? Well, I, I think the two main problems with with what D David said, and one thing that I would that I would agree with. So the two main problems are: firstly, he's just rejected the very idea of human rights and uh, human rights playing any significant uh, role in the world, which is you know to kind of reject what much of the last 50 years has been about building in terms of uh, global governance and in international security. A second problem is that he's collapsed refugees and migrants together. Um, if you look at the uh, international refugee regime rather, rather than, you know, collapsing it out onto migrants, in general, the history of the last... 30 years is not a history of ever widening. The history of the last 30 years is a history of Western countries making it increasingly hard for people to actually reach their borders to claim asylum um, and narrowing down the grounds on which or trying to narrow down the grounds on which asylum can be claimed. An additional point would be that David's presented this in terms of people saying they have a right to come to Europe. That's not the issue. the issue. The issue is, do people have a right to refuge in virtue of being persecuted or having their human rights not protected by their states? Now, that's international, the international law. It seems to me that's a perfectly reasonable position. There are... There are, and here is where I'll come to my point of agreement with David, there are huge political challenges involved in in this and one of the central problems that we have is that the current international refugee regime doesn't uh, have built into it uh, mechanisms for a distribution of refugees now that the result of that of course as we know is that the vast majority of the world's refugees are in the developing world um, the vast majority of refugees from Syria are not in Europe. I mean, in, 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 in 2015, there were 700-odd thousand applications for asylum from Syria in Europe. 
which is simply dwarfed by the numbers that are present in Turkey, Lebanon, Egypt. It's not that, you know, we are taking some large chunk of Syrian refugees. We're taking actually quite a small fraction of them, about 10% thus far. So, I mean, I think that I think that it's a sort of rather overstated thing. And the notion that nation states have an existential right to decide their membership is, uh, I think, uh, a nonsense. I mean, if that were the case, nation states would have the right to decide that, oh, you know, we're going to get rid. We don't need to give citizenship to children of this social uh group um that's fine that's our existential right i mean that that's that's that that's just you know a nutty view okay a lot of nonsense uh being thrown here um maybe we could um, move on to well there are two questions here really we could start with this this issue that you both have raised about uh, sharing the burden so to speak of refugees so um david goodhart you uh, raise this view here, which I guess is basically the uh, has been the UK government view as well, is that uh, we should prioritise giving aid or helping those neighbouring countries of conflict zones rather than accepting or admitting people um, into Europe. Is yeah. Um, no, well, David is quite right about, uh, I mean, just to respond briefly to him and then to go on mm. to this new point. I mean, um, yes, I, I do, in effect, want to collapse um, the refugee category into the migration category because there, there is a very important distinction between the two. At the moment, refugees are a category of people over whom we have no choice, whereas migrants are, by definition, people that we can choose and select to allow into the country. And yes, I do think that refugees should, broadly speaking, come into that category too. When he says that um, um, there has been no broadening of the legal criterion or loosening of the legal criterion. I think he's completely and utterly wrong on that. Um, he is right to say that um, while the laws have become far more open, so open, in fact, that Charles Clark, I mean, you know, hardly a, um, a conservative figure in this debate, Charles Clark wrote in a Centre for European Reform pamphlet a few years ago that he reckoned that given in the current legal framework, literally hundreds of millions of people could claim um, asylum in Britain or indeed in any other European country. Um, now, it is true that along with that legal loosening, we have had a, a physical, a raising of the physical barriers. Uh, so this is where Europe's hypocrisy comes in. You know, we, we, we have this, this lovely legal regime, and then we jolly well make sure that nobody can take advantage of it. And most of, for most of the last 50 years, nobody has been able to take advantage of it, for reasons I gave earlier. Now they can, and we are abandoning it. I mean, I think, you know, I think we're quite properly abandoning it. We should never have had it in the bloody first place. Um, but um, it's perfectly rational for societies like ours, which, um, in which the value of social citizenship is enormously high compared to most countries in the world, and you, are, you have to have high barriers around, uh, around those countries. Um, you, know, it, it, yeah, you know, we don't want to get into arguments about you know, open-door migration and so on, but, I mean, it, you know, we had open-door migration in rich European countries with, with very generous uh, social citizenship regimes. I mean, they, you know, hundreds of millions, of, tens of millions of people would come here um, and the, the whole system would collapse. I mean, it's just so obvious. I don't know why we even bother thinking about it. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I would say to what David has just said. Um, it's true 
as he said, the most refugees are in the poor world, although I'm not sure I'd classify Turkey any longer as in the poor world. It's got GDP per capita of higher than a couple of EU states, I think now, about $15,000, $16,000 a year. Um, and um, But, uh, yes, I mean, our duties as rich liberal European countries is to ease the burden of those countries, not to say to those refugees, you can all come and live in Europe. That would be bad for them, and I think it would be bad for us as well. Um, in terms of... Um, um, Europe is doing both not enough and too much in some ways. I think uh, Angela Merkel's um, you know, beckoning of, uh, of uh, you know, sort of global refugees to, to, to come to Europe um, last summer was a catastrophic error, which she's been paying a very high price for. Um, and um, I don't, you know, I mean, I think, you know, Germany made a big mistake. I think Germany and Sweden are now ruining the fact that uh, they, they have, had such an open policy um, that policy has now gone into reverse. Um, uh, for, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, apart from anything else, it means that you attract. It's a free for all. I mean, you, you know, th- th- this is not. It sounds nice, and obviously, in the German case, there's a huge aspect of still seeking redemption for uh, German actions in the first half of the 20th century. Um, but it's you create a, a free for all, yeah, and the, the stronger, the richer. Uh, uh, you know, the, the most dynamic people often from, from poor countries or crisis situations are the ones that can get through. They're the ones that can afford to pay the people smugglers and so on and so forth. But the most vulnerable um, are the people that don't benefit. And, and that, that is wrong. I mean, we should, um, we should select much more than we do. Um, uh, and indeed, we should encourage people to apply outside Europe, not inside Europe, not tempting people to make these dangerous journeys and have an you know, orderly system and, and a much more restrictive system. Uh, I mean, the important thing, first of all, which I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say is sort of starting to happen now, is that people should recognise there is a European border and they can't just automatically come here as briefly they thought they could uh, at the end of last year. Um, I, I do think it's very important that there is that, uh, that, no, that nobody in Brussels or indeed Berlin decides you know, who or how many people each individual should country, country should take. This has to be a, uh, a coalition of the willing. It has to be a choice made by countries. And there should be a political debate inside those countries as to how many people and, and perhaps even what kind of people. Um, different countries have different histories. They have different allegiances to, to different countries. You know, you know we, the, the, the minority population of Britain is partly shaped by our history, um, and the same, uh, to some extent, would be true of, um, of, of refugee policy, too. Um, some of those Eastern European countries are much more ethnically homogeneous. They're much warier of um, demographic change. And I think we have to respect that. They will change as, as we did in Western Europe. All right. Thanks. Let's, let's uh, go to David Owen. Do you, do you think that the kind of German approach of admitting more refugees um, is, is a good one? And what do you make of this? point that David Goodhart just made that countries should, because you were coming from this more from a human rights perspective, so I'm, I'm taking it you disagree with this point that countries should be allowed to select and choose who they accept into, uh, as refugees. Um, in general, I, I, I would uh, reject the idea that, that countries get to accept and choose, unless um, it's the case that you have a broad 
coalition of countries uh, admitting, as you potentially do in this kind of crisis, and there are good reasons to divide people up. For example, you know, countries which already have a Syrian diaspora and may have family, where refugees coming may have family links, there are good reasons for those refugees to go to those particular states, okay? There may also be reasons relating to, um, you know, particular needs of those states for certain groups, and as long as that doesn't actually affect people's access to uh, refugee status in one state or other, it seems to me, again, reasonable that states could bring their own needs into, as it were, uh, the choosing or selecting of a group of refugees who have already been accepted as refugees. I mean, it's important to note here, just to go back to the 51 Convention, that all the 51 Convention requires is that someone who presents themselves as a border has a fair and impartial hearing as to their refugee status, and that the country to which they have made application has a special duty towards them. That duty, however, is not necessarily to host them. It is rather a responsibility to ensure that they're not subject to refoulement. That is, they're not sent back to either the state from which they fled or any other state where their human rights can't, to a reasonable degree, be protected. So it's perfectly compatible with a state uh, accepting the claims of a very large number of people as refugees, but arranging in agreement with other states for those refugees to be hosted elsewhere. There is nothing under the current convention that prevents that. In fact, it's a feature of the convention that it simply leaves open for states to coordinate how they choose to distribute refugees. It simply says that the default, if you can't get anybody else to agree with you as b- about uh, distribution, is that you would then have to accept them. I mean, so that's an important point because it, it pushes to what's perhaps been the sort of cent- central issue raised by the Syrian refugee crisis, both for Europe and actually for the wider world, which is the lack of any organised sort of political structure of adequate response to this kind of crisis. Mm. Now, Mm. um, so, so for example, you know, it may well be the case that there are good reasons why it would be better to host at least significant numbers, i.e. as there currently are, of refugees in states relatively near to Syria, in terms of thinking about when the war has finally played itself out, reconstruction, in terms of links with um, families who've been unable to, to, to free. But if that's the route you go down and you say, well, look, presence... Sh- presence of refugees should be located there then you separate off presence and finance and you say right those countries who aren't hosting have financial obligations towards those countries that 
are, which, apart from anything else, would improve the chances of refugees in those countries having their rights uh, respected. You might also take up, if it's going to, likely to be a longer-term issue, the suggestion of Paul Collier, which is that you start building, um, invest, you invest in uh, kind of industry and manufacturing and production ser- services in the areas around where refugees are. Um, there was a very interesting experiment in Uganda um, where money was given to refugees to start sort of small businesses within the refugee camps. I mean, there are all sorts of things you can you can potentially mm. do. And that's the really problem- interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I hadn't I hadn't realised. Um, so it's very very useful for me to know that there is uh, in the in the fifty one convention does not require the hosting. And I think that's so important, such an important point. Um, and it certainly makes me revise my thinking. I don't think we need to sweep away the 51 Convention if that is the case. However, I mean, the, the way that it is thought about in practice, both by potential refugees and by European politicians and publics, is that that is precisely what the 51 Convention does require. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm pleased and relieved in some ways that what I'm arguing actually still can be contained within the 51 Convention, because what I'm arguing is very much what, what Paul Collier and others are saying, is that there are many different ways in which you can help, and one of the ways in which we in, in Britain uh, and other parts of Europe can help is by becoming much cleverer at responding you know, swiftly and efficiently to crises, whether they're um, you know, natural disasters or civil wars or whatever, you know, producing, uh, creating safe havens, creating these temporary towns with clinics and schools and indeed um, the opportunity to work as, as, as Collier's work has uh, underlined. Mm. Um, and I think that is, you know, that is, and, and, and the UNHCR seems to be making a bit of a dog's breakfast of it. And I, I don't, I mean, the, you know, the EU could enormously enhance its standing in the world. And I think it's standing amongst European citizens. If it, it took over in effect or, or jointly managed the, um, the, the camps that the UNHCR seems to be rather screwing up. I mean, it may not be the UNHCR's fault. It may be that they're not getting the funding that they're meant to be getting from most yeah. other people, the European states. Uh, but, I mean, actually to have a more direct, particularly in our near abroad, in North Africa and the Middle East, um, in Ukraine and so on, you know, when crises like this happen, <clears throat> we should be, you know, first the first people there. We, meaning the EU, should be the first people there sorting it out. Um <laughs> Let's go back to David Owen here for a final point, I think. Well, I mean, the the only remaining points that I make, just um, two, is one, I agree we need such a system in place. We don't have it. Uh, and we don't have anything that works well like it at the moment. So now the question is not what would we do under conditions where we had these things in place, which I entirely agree we, we, we need. But what do we do under the present conditions? Um, And there I think uh, it is perfectly right that um, refugees who make the dangerous voyage uh, to Europe that we would in general prefer they didn't have to make um, are given at the very least temporary refuge within Europe until uh, it can be safe places for them uh, elsewhere if needed can be made now there's another kind of argument that you could make here about how um states really should take at least some refuge 
geez, because it's, as it were, un- unfair um, to for all the presents to be elsewhere. Um, I, I'll leave that aside. The, the, the one thing I would make is that um, David and, and myself, essentially, thus far, have, have been working on the presumption that the refugees' own agency and choices shouldn't count, or at least are secondary to the fundamental aim of protection of, 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 of refugees. Um, there is a, an issue there, though, about whether if refugees have particular connections to states, be it via family or professional networks, um, in particular, that they should have that their agency in terms of going towards that state should count, and I think in general, refugee agencies should count more when the uh, issue is likely to be a kind of permanent, ongoing uh, state of refuge. I mean, one hopes in the in the Syrian case it won't be. One hopes, as it were, that the war will play itself out before too long but of course it's in, it is possible that it will be a, a long and permanent process in those contexts i think then we have to look again at what a fair distribution would be and merkel's merkel's choice is interesting um and uh, no undoubtedly was partly uh, moral and humanitarian um but it was also i think partly a, a strategic um choice albeit one she can't really say publicly Germany, like most European societies, is a significantly ageing society. The average age of refugee population is very low. Um, Most European societies are going to require uh, either higher birth rates or uh, some levels of immigration over the next 20 and 30 years to to support the uh, pensions and welfare state of that a- those ageing populations. Um, and I think Merkel at least had half an eye to the fact that, well, actually, an influx of primarily youthful population into Germany um, is probably going to be economically beneficial. Um, if she did But she can't possibly say that. No, I mean, but even if she thought that, I mean, she is so foolish. It's uh, it, it's it, it's impossible, I think, that she did think that. I mean, if, if Germany wants to um, to change it, the current direction of its age structure, and there's no particular reason why it should, actually. I mean, you know, automation, more women joining the workforce, I and mean, then all sorts of other ways you can do it, and, and indeed moderate levels of immigration. And, you know, a million and a half people a year is not a moderate level of immigration, even in Germany. Um, you just have a more... Um, you know, pro-maternal um, social policy. You make it easier for women to to have larger families. I mean, that it's it's you know that there is a very simple way of doing it. Uh, you know, bringing in a million people mainly from traditional societies that don't speak your language. I mean, it'll take three or four generations. I mean, it usually takes three or four generations for integration to really work. Uh, possibly longer in the case of people from more traditional societies. I mean, we just have to look at the levels of segregation in parts of Britain today. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. But anyway, I mean, that, that's, that's a slightly different point. So one final minute each, David Owen. Europe has not been doing enough, but the biggest problem is the lack of a proper international political structure for dealing with these kinds of crises, which occur with unfortunate uh, regularity not necessarily always in relation to europe but in relation to one area of the world or another 
along with the legal regime, we need a proper political organization at, at, at a global level. Thanks. Very short. Excellent. David Goodhart. Um, yes. I mean, we, we, we have to break the momentum, and I think we have broken the momentum thanks to this dirty deal with Turkey. Um, we need to establish, as we were just saying, much better reaction uh, in terms of keeping people you know, safe um, and looked after and indeed able to work and so on near the, the points of these major crises. Um, but we need to stop thinking in terms of, of um, the need to host refugees in large numbers. We may want to select some of the most needy, perhaps orphans, people who need special medical care and so on. But there are all sorts of other ways in which the rich world can fulfil its obligations to to desperate people. We do that through, you know, through international aid. And we, you know, we've achieved the 0.7 percent of GDP. We do it indeed through military means. Sometimes trying to secure uh, their countries. We lost 500 people in Afghanistan, for example. And um, we've we've got to think in those much broader terms. Um, but the but the, pri- the immediate priority now is to reassure European publics that actually you know we we can we do have borders and we can control them. To find out more, please visit our website talkingmigration.com. Now on to our next but related topic. In 2015, over one million people crossed the Mediterranean to Europe. Many thousands died along the way. But who are they? Why do they choose to undertake this dangerous journey? And how can their safety be secured whilst Europeans remain very sceptical to accepting more refugees? Here to discuss the issue is Professor Heaven Crawley from Coventry University. She's part of a large research project that has interviewed 500 refugees and migrants who have made the journey by boat to Europe. I asked Professor Crawley to tell us what these people told her and her research team. Okay, so in September last year, we uh, secured funding from the Economic and Social Research Council and the Department for International Development uh, to undertake research in four different countries, Greece, Turkey, uh, Italy and Malta, really exploring the experiences, journeys and trajectories of people who'd arrived across the Mediterranean Sea during the course of 2015. So what we did was essentially mobilize pretty quickly and get ourselves into the field in September when the arrivals were particularly high in Greece and were able to interview around 500 uh, people who'd made that crossing. And also we spoke to about 100 um, stakeholders, policymakers, uh, people on the front line providing services, as well as people working in international organizations to get a flavor or a a broader sense of what was going on. And and what was clear and is clear now is that this is a period of very rapid change in terms of not just the scale of the flows and the movements across the Mediterranean, but also in terms of the composition of the flows. So we've been looking at the differences between the so-called central Mediterranean route, in other words, from Libya to Italy, and the eastern Mediterranean route between Turkey and Greece, and really trying to understand the backstories to some of the journeys that people have made in terms of how they came to be on the move, what um, factors led them to be at that point in time where they were, and also their hopes and aspirations for the future. Great. So um, in terms of the people uh, who are making these journeys, could what can we, what do we know about um, who they are? So you know, people often wonder how many are Syrians, and uh, and if they aren't Syrians, then who are um, who are the rest? And we also often hear that most people show that this is changing, and why is this the case? 
Okay, so I suppose the first thing to, to million people that crossed in 2015 and, and start to unpack some of the differences, not just in terms of the route, but also in terms of the backgrounds of those people who are coming. So um, there are very significant differences between um, the Central and Eastern Mediterranean routes. So in 2015, around 850,000 people crossed from Turkey to Greece. Um, those people almost exclusively came from five different countries, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and Pakistan. Together, those five nationalities made up 96% of all arrivals during 2015 uh, in Greece. By contrast, in the Italian route, what we saw was a much more diverse array of people from a wider range of countries. So whereas about a quarter of the people who were arriving in 2014 were from Syria, by 2015, that had dropped to just around 5 or 6%. And actually, Actually, the majority of people were coming from a whole range of different countries, 20 or 30 different countries, mostly in sub-Saharan and East and Central um, Africa. So in terms of the, the country of origin, that tells us that the factors that are driving people to leave their countries are quite variable. We know that the conflict in Syria has been a major driver, of course, of the, of the Greek route. But we also know that one of the reasons why people are leaving Libya in such large numbers is the breakdown of um, the government in that country. And so people who may be moved to Libya uh, for work, particularly from East and Central Africa, um, have found themselves being caught up in what is often a lawless situation where they effectively turn into refugees because they can't go back the, the way they came, but it's not safe for them any longer in Libya. So this idea that... People are either economic migrants or refugees. I think is challenged by some of our evidence, which suggests that actually people move between categories, both over time and also in terms of their movement over space. So this is an interesting point you made there in the end about this distinction between economic migrants and refugees. And um, many are very keen to make this distinction, in particular policymakers, because it's supposedly making it easier to design um, policies to to deal with these flows. But you're talking about the mixed motivations people have to move and then the situation in Libya. So um, can you, could you say a bit more about that? And could you say a bit more how how could we possibly deal with that in terms of policy? Sure. I mean, I suppose in the past, people have known about mixed flows in the sense of if there are 500 people boarding a boat in Libya, there'll be a mixture of people coming from all different countries, different backgrounds on that boat. So what you might call refugees, but also people who you might classify as economic migrants. I suppose what our research has shown is that there are mixed motivations within one single human being. And that has become more complicated the longer and more protracted the journey has become. So the more that policy makes it difficult for people to seek protection or to access work legally, the longer those journeys take and the longer people spend in different places. And when they spend more time in different places, their motivations can change for them. So an individual may arrive in Europe and come from a country which is deemed to be, if you like, safe in the sense that there aren't large numbers of refugees um, being granted protection or it's considered to be 
a, a country predominantly without conflict. But because of their experiences on the journey, they find themselves in effectively refugee-like situations. So I think this categorization that we see, as you say, driving the policy debate is really problematic and has become more problematic the more difficult it has been for people to make that journey. So policymakers are making their life more difficult in a way because they're constructing ever narrower and ever more um, kind of simplistically defined categories in order to uh, put people in different boxes and allow them to have access to rights and resources accordingly. But the journey itself is often less of a journey and more of a kind of life trajectory. It can take weeks, months and often years. And that journey, um, as I say, covers all sorts of different experiences that make it very difficult to categorise people. Mm. Um, changing slightly the topic, there's there's been a longer problem in Greece about um, resources and Greece not being able to, to deal with a large number of arrivals there. Um, and I think in your research, you point to Italy and, and saying that they seem to have a better infrastructure in place. So could you um, just talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think it's it's fair to say that Italy and Greece are very different contexts into which refugees are arriving and that those contexts are changing rapidly, um, even since we completed our fieldwork in January of this year. So the situation in, in Greece is that we've gone from having literally tens of thousands of um people arriving across the Aegean Sea into a situation where you have 850,000 people arriving into a country which this time last year was about to be booted out of Europe potentially because of the Eurozone crisis. It has a very significant economic um, issues of one kind or another, including, you know, unemployment rates of more than 40% in some areas, particularly for young people. It has a very politically fragmented system because we have a, a government that is partly uh, on the left and partly on the right. So getting agreement and consensus around some of these issues is also very um, challenging and problematic. And of course, Greece has become positioned and in a, a quite particular way over recent months in relation to Turkey, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the EU-Turkey deal and returns. So The fact that the situation in Turkey, uh, sorry, in Greece is quite chaotic, if you like, is perhaps not surprising. When you have that many people arriving spontaneously into an environment which hasn't had previously uh, very large numbers and where there simply isn't the infrastructure or the resources uh, to deal with them, um, I don't think anybody is particularly surprised that the Greeks have found it very difficult to mobilize the resources and the expertise despite promises from the European Union to assist them. That hasn't often materialised in time. By contrast, Italy had in the previous year, 2014, actually more people arriving than in 2015, so around 170,000 compared to 150,000. So they had already, in a way, had to deal with some of these issues. And of course, that's still six times, five times fewer than the numbers arriving in Greece. So they already had some infrastructure in place. That's not to say that that infrastructure isn't problematic and that people can um, also experience difficulties in accessing protection and in terms of getting the kind of support they need whilst they're waiting for a decision. But I guess they've had a longer time at it. They've got much lower numbers still and they don't have the same political and economic problems as Greece. So in that sense it's it's you know not surprising that we're seeing such differences mm. 
Uh, I think one of the main things that your research um, shows is, is just how complex the situation is and how difficult it is to, to draw clear distinctions um, in any way. But how do you, uh, so moving on a bit to, you know, what you would do about it. So how do you translate that into policy? And especially, how do you think you can balance the rights of refugees against the sort of European population that isn't quite so keen on accepting large numbers at the moment? Well, I think the first thing to say is that a lot of the issues around the so-called crisis have originated from and being exacerbated by the political narrative that's developed over the last year in relation to the issues. So a million people crossing the Mediterranean is not without consequence. But on the other hand, a million people across 28 member states of the European Union, relative to more than a million people in a country like for example, the Lebanon, with only a population of 4 million. It does seem to me that this has been handled politically very badly. And actually, that political handling or mishandling of this situation has made it difficult for policymakers to make the right policy, because a lot of what's happening is driven by certain assumptions about why people are coming. So we still hear talk of a migration crisis, even though 84% of those arriving in 2015 were from the top 10 refugee producing countries. This is a crisis of refugee protection, that's clear. But the narrative in Europe is so dominated by um, concerns about, you know, the problem as defined of migration rather than the, the protection needs of those who are on the move, that politicians have effectively closed down the policy space into which to make good policy. So... I, I don't agree with some of the analysis that suggests that policymakers are simply responding to public opinion. I think po public opinion is formed in part by the kind of political leadership that we've seen or not seen. So when, you know, when European member states agree that they're going to relocate 160,000 people who've arrived in Greece and Italy, and then eight months on, they've only uh, relocated around 1,500. What people in Europe see is a failure of European leaders to deliver what they've promised. And that, of course, again, closes down the, the political space to do things differently. So I think there's a very complex relationship between policy, politics and practice. Um, and I think what needs to happen in a way are two things. One is there needs to be a different style of political leadership that accepts some of the facts which absolutely uh, underpin this crisis in terms of the, the movement of people, but also accept that Europe could deal with this very differently, both in terms of it, its efficiency of of actually delivering the things that have been promised, but also the politics, sort of taking out some of the political rhetoric, which is making it very difficult to create the space to, to, to have the kinds of policies that are needed. Mm. One of those policies that, that a lot of people think are needed are the so-called safe and, and legal routes into the EU. Um, but it's not very clear exactly what that would mean in practice. Have you Have you got any thoughts on that? Well, we haven't in our research been so much focusing on the on the the detailed policy analysis because we're really interested in the experiences of, of migrants and refugees themselves but I think it's fair to say based on that experience that if you are somebody on the move for whom it feels impossible to remain where you are either because you fear for your safety or because having dodged the bullets effectively, you're now in a place where you can't rebuild your life and your livelihood for yourself and your children, then people will continue to move. And it doesn't matter 
in a way, how many barriers you put up, how many people drown en route, um, or indeed how expensive it is. Um, people feel that they have nothing to lose. They've already lost hope and uh, about any kind of prospect of return. So they will continue on their journey. In that context, we need, I think, to create uh, safer legal, legal routes for people who are in need of protection. So that's really about uh, larger scale resettlement than anything we've seen so far. So we've heard talk of you know, tens, maybe 20 plus thousand people being relocated from camps in Jordan um, and Lebanon. But really, we should be talking about hundreds of thousands in the same way as we've done previously when there's been um, the need for protection on this scale. And we have within the European Union, the mechanisms to deal with this um, that were developed after the Balkan conflict, but have not been instituted. So, you know, you could relatively simply have um, safe or legal routes created that would enable people to move uh, without the need to make that crossing illegally. But equally, I think we need to be seriously thinking about safe and legal routes for work, because the reality is, is that the European Union is experiencing and will experience a demographic deficit to the tune of around 50 million by uh, 2050. That means, in effect, that we need 50 million migrants from outside of Europe in order to compensate for our ageing population and all that goes with that in terms of the increased um, welfare bill, but also the reduction in uh, tax income receipts. So we have option here about, you know, opening up temporary labour routes, circular migration routes, and none of those are being talked about because there is this concern that the you know the European publics don't want migration from outside Europe. They may not want that politically, but demographically and economically, it is something that we have to really start talking about over the next 10, 15 years. And I think that was partly in the minds of the German authorities when they very pragmatically, in my view, um, recognised that people would be in need of protection, but also would then be able to, you know, supplement some of their demographic uh, needs. To find out more about our guests and their work and to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. That's all for this time. Thank you for listening.